Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Busky Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He is an author, scholar, cultural, and political critic. He writes for American Greatness, and he also writes for his own website, The Blade of Perseus. And you can join that website at a $5 a month subscription or a $50 a year subscription. So please come join us. Today's show, we have a special guest, Mark Moyer. He has written many books, but among which are The Triumph Forsaken, The Vietnam War from 1954 to 1965, published in 2006, and his most recent book, The Triumph Regained, The Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. He has a PhD from Cambridge University and has taught at Cambridge, Ohio State University, Texas A&M, and was on the faculty at the Marine Corps University at Quantico as the Adamson's Chair of Insurgency and Terrorism. He is most currently uh, working at Hillsdale College as the William P. Harris Chair of History of Military History. So we would like to welcome Mark Moyer, and let's take a moment for some important messages, and we'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back, Mark. I just want to say before handing over this to Victor that I come from the generation of uh, Chimino's Deer Hunter and Coppola's Apocalypse Now, which are rather bleak movies and a bleak portrayal of Vietnam. So I'm looking forward to a an appraisal that's much less negative of the legacy of Vietnam <laughs> in the U.S. So welcome to the show. And Victor, I'll hand it over to you. You might have mentioned Platoon too, Oliver Stone. Yeah, and Full Metal Jacket, except full I didn't metal want to ja- mention Jackson, <laughs> born on the 4th of July. So, Mark, uh, I'll get right to it. This is volume two that has just come out. And for everybody listening, that's triumphed, regained the Vietnam War 1965 to 1968. And this is the second volume in a trilogy. And as Sammy said, 16 to 17 years ago, you kind of made a a big impression on people, I shouldn't say kind of, you did with Triumph Forsaken. And that theme was that most of the current journalistic and historical appraisals of Vietnam were either biased or incomplete or inadequate in some ways, and that that far from being a, a complete debacle or a waste of time or a bloodbath or a war crime, that there was a viable pathway to save a sovereign South Vietnam, maybe analogous to South Korea, without the enormous escalation that followed with LBJ. And then one of the hallmarks of that book was the, and this is what I'm getting to, the assassination of Diem, the president of Vietnam, who, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, he was one of the few that was not a military man. And that coup either transpired with the willing assent of the United States or they knew about it in advance and did nothing. And then, of course, he was assassinated very shortly within hours, I guess. And you, why did you think that that was one of the turning points? You mentioned a couple of others in your first fall. And before we get to this, this current, what was so important about that assassination? Yes, Victor, that's one of the most controversial parts of the whole Vietnam War, perhaps the most controversial. And the consensus view has been that GM was really a reactionary, family was corrupt, he was too autocratic, and the war wasn't going well. And so it was reasonable for the U.S. to uh, support his overthrow in 1963. Now, the reason we get that narrative is that people like David Halberstam, Neil Sheehan, and Stanley Carno have passed the, the mainstream version of that event down. What I looked at, uh, first of all, in that period is, what were those guys doing at the time? Well, it turns out they were actually cheerleaders for the coup, which something they downplayed later because the coup is such a disaster. But they actually are instrumental in convincing Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge to foment this coup. And they're not actually opposed to the war Contrary to much of what would be said later, they actually want the U.S. to succeed. But they're saying, well, if we only were to get rid of this President Ziem and put somebody else in, things will go much better. And 
they they were really uh, viewed it in sort of black and white terms, and it's in some ways similar to how we see today the media picking uh, friends and enemies with respect to the Ukraine crisis. Uh, but it's uh, it, we now know, and one of the most telling things I found in that book is that the war is actually going very well in 1963, which the conventional narrative kind of denied. So now that we know from North Vietnamese sources that the war was actually going well, it it makes it very clear that Ziem was not uh, the ineffective leader we thought. And also, one of the reasons he gets overthrown, one of the main ones, is that he wasn't accommodating enough towards these Buddhist protesters who are complaining about his regime. And uh, But it turns out those protesters become even more hostile to the government later. In fact, 1966, they stage another uprising and the government then puts it down by force. And Ambassador Lodge himself now recognizes that these were charlatans who should not have been heeded. And then the fall of Ziem then sets in motion a chain of other events. And it, among other things, convinces the North Vietnamese that now the time is ripe to invade South Vietnam, which they then do at the beginning of 1965. And it's because the government has become so weak, it goes through a, a series of coups well, and purges that uh, leads America into war. Was Diem, was he, am I mistaken? And I, as I, and it's been a while since I read the first volume, but you allude to it in the second. And by the way, you can read a review of the second volume, the current volume, Triumph Regained in American Greatness Online. I, I wrote it Monday, 2,300 words. It's a wonderful book. And I tried to, uh, I didn't give it justice because I didn't have enough length to, to cover the main points. But was the anger at, was, what was the attitude of Diem and American troops? Was he all that hot or all that eager for America to pour troops in? Or did he feel that that would ins- that would be problematic and he could handle the infiltration if he got support rather than massive troop, troop influxes? Because I, I don't I've never quite understood whether he was going to be as eager to have American troops in as his successors were. Yeah, so that's a great question, and uh, and thank you, by the way, for that review, which was terrific and uh, did hit uh, great points. Uh, but Ziem does not really spend a lot of time thinking about this because you got to remember, in time during his lifetime, except in 1961 for a brief period, there's no serious threat to the government, and no one's really talking about committing U.S. ground troops because the North is mainly fighting a guerrilla war, and guerrillas are not usually capable of taking over entire countries. And so this is one of the reasons why his death is so problematic, because uh, up until this time, the North Vietnamese, they've been afraid of massive U.S. intervention, and they don't want to launch a full-blown invasion like the Korean War. Uh, but Ziem and the, the chaos that follows him together with Lyndon Johnson's uh, 1964 rhetoric about how he's not going to send American boys to Vietnam, will then incite the North Vietnamese to launch this invasion. And so it's not till 1965 that you have these huge conventional battles that uh, South Vietnamese do okay in some of them, but they, they get ground down. And it's at that point that there's it's basically either U.S. has to commit troops when, when- or watch South fall. 
it, when JFK is killed on November 22nd of 1963, was the American troop level, uh, quote unquote, advisors and naval or aerial support about 10,000 or had it reached that level or, or gone beyond? Yeah, like uh, when Kenny takes office, it's under a thousand. And then he actually, by the time of his death, it's up to 16,000. And he was very interested. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of mythology about how Kennedy would have pulled out of Vietnam. I think that's completely false. He was as committed to the Cold War, if not more so than Lyndon Johnson. And uh, but the, at the time, these are just support troops and advisors, and they help with you know air power, other sophisticated equipment. But there's not at that point really a need for U.S. combat troops. What I was if we move now to the current volume, which is 1965 to 68, and this is the period of escalation where the war becomes LBJ's war. And remember, everybody, that he's trying to do this massive multi today, multi-trillion dollar in today's dollars, great society program. And he's he's reluctant to jeopardize that by having a full scale war. But one of the ironies that was in your book, Mark, was I had not realized. Uh, so we. The, the chief advisors that he inherits, I guess the Bundy brothers, him lodged for a while in Saigon. Averill Harriman's always floating around somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then he has Robert McNamara. And then he gets Walt, is Walt Rostow and Dean Rusk. They're, what I'm getting at is all of these mm -hmm. people are, are giving him a consensus to escalate, to save South Vietnam Nam, in the way that we saved Korea, but there's going to be a break or a divergence between them, aren't there? They're going to be the, what I found so ironic is that once LBJ accedes to their request and he pours this enormous number of troops and gets up to 530,000, as everybody remembers or has read about, the people who were demanding that escalation, they break off and the old Kennedy best and brightest then sort of turn on him and want him want him to de-escalate or get out or have a bombing halt. And then yet there's this group of, is it Dean Rusk and Walt Rostow and maybe even Maxwell yes. Taylor? Or, were they Kennedy holdovers or were they Johnson men? Well, Rostow um, comes in under Johnson, um, although he was you know, also um, – friendly with the Kennedys, um, but he, he will, Rostow and uh, Taylor will diverge from the others, especially in 1968. Uh, but you have initially McNamara being the dominant voice in 1965. And right away, you have the Joint Chiefs of Staff arguing vociferously against what McNamara is doing, because McNamara has bought into the academic notions of conflict management, and he wants to uh, used this policy of gradual escalation of the bombing of North Vietnam, whereas the generals are saying, no, we've got to hit them really hard. And uh, and so then there's all these debates over, is the bombing really having a military effect, as the generals say, or is it simply a symbolic act, which is what McNamara claims. And now, then with more, now that we know more from the North Vietnamese side, we can see that this gradual escalation was really disastrous because it, it prevented us from inflicting damage we could have inflicted. And it also gave the North Vietnamese time to build up their air defenses. Yeah. I'd like to, for our audience, I think some of you that are well acquainted with Vietnam know that there are these canards or these truisms 
that we've been told uh, that are iconic of the war. And Mark's book really questions them. And if it's okay, Mark, I'd like to go through them. The, the first is this idea that we all thought that under Nixon, when we had some laser-guided munitions and we had linebacker one and two, that it was very effective. And it it basically won the war. And I think you're going to deal with that in the third volume. But the earlier Rolling Thunder were area bombing. They were sloppy. We got all these planes shot down. They had no effect. We didn't. We were all. That's not quite true, is it? No. Rolling Thunder does have some serious military consequences that some of this we only know now from seeing what the North are saying. But there's a huge debate over the enemy logistics. And McNamara is saying the enemy has plenty of extra logistical capacity. So if we bomb them some more it won't make a difference. And the military is saying, no, 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 that's not true, that if we bomb them, it's going to hurt their logistical capacity. Well, again, the North Vietnamese documents have now made clear that, in fact, there was not this great unused capacity. And even with the limited bombing, the North Vietnamese are oftentimes unable to operate because they don't have enough food or ammunition. And then we also know in 1967, Johnson starts increasing the bombing because there's a congressional hearing uh, into the bombing. And at that point, they actually bring Hanoi to the verge of starvation. And people are speculating that you know, Han Hanoi may be ready to throw in the towel because if people can't eat. Uh, it's going to break their will. But Johnson doesn't fully understand this. And he backs off in one of these many bombing pauses that are supposed to encourage the enemy to negotiate, which is another big fallacy that if we only stop hurting the enemy, they'll then will negotiate when the truth is like exactly the opposite. Let's go to another another really, I think, important revisionist point. I know when I was in high school, uh, everybody, you would turn on the news and it was William Wastemore Land. And he was Westmore, uh, Westmoreland, who had a distinguished record prior to Vietnam. And he, I think he had been in Korea in World War II. But mm -hmm. this idea, we were told by Cronkite and John Chancellor and the entire network news that we were sending Americans out to mountains and jungles. They were dropping in and then they were being ambushed and taking uh, unsustainable casualties with minimal effect and search and destroy was a terrible strategy that lost us the war. And then Creighton Abrams, who I think you were very fair to and said was a, a very good commander, but you, you made a distinction, and if I read it right, that while he was good, he did continue for a while the search and destroy. And the reason he tapered off is they had already served their effect of preventing mass concentrations of North Vietnamese troops and then giving a cushion or sort of a, a safety guard for the RVN, the Republic of v uh, Vietnam's army to to be developed and to mature without being attacked in the South. And so that Books that I and I know that you had a lot of respect for, you do, and I do too. Lewis Sorley's A Better War. They may not have been as fair as you were to Westmoreland. Is that is that accurate? Yes, uh, I am more positive than Westmoreland uh, on Westmoreland. Most people have been, and he's been attacked from a number of directions. And uh, but in what I do, and partly why I've spent so much time and broken this up into three volumes, is you really need to dig into the particularities of the situation and look at especially what's going on in the war, because people oftentimes think this was sort of a static conflict, uh, guerrilla war from beginning to end. But in fact, there 
some periods where the enemy is much more active in terms of conventional fighting. And we do see that, and, and Westmoreland argued, I think, correctly, that when the enemy ha- has battalions or regiments running around, you don't want to wait for them to come attack you because they will attack your cities. And then your only option at that point is to use massive firepower in the cities and the cities get destroyed. And we actually see this in the Tet Offensive where the North Vietnamese are allowed to get to bring large numbers of troops to the city of Quay. And it, and it turns out to be you know, ultimately they're defeated. But uh, you, you don't really want to be in the business of having your in all your cities destroyed in the process of defeating the enemy. And uh, and we also this is again where North Vietnamese tell us you know, they didn't think Westmoreland was was a fool. And in fact, they acknowledge that he what he does for the most part is causing them grievous casualties. They're never able to win a significant battle during this period. And you know the U.S. is able to maintain the initiative because they go after the North Vietnamese rather, rather than letting the North Vietnamese decide when and where they're going to fight. Let's go to a third one that I think is equally controversial. Most of us were told during the time and since that there was a indigenous communist movement, sometimes they don't even use the word communist, reformist movement, dissident group in the South called the Viet Cong, which was an entity separate from, although helped by the North Vietnamese regular army and Russia and China, and that this was a very large group that that reflected the idea that they wanted a unified South under a communist regime and that the South Vietnamese government was not legitimate because of the the sheer grassroots support of Viet Cong and the ability of the Viet Viet Cong to do so much damage independent of the North Vietnamese. And yet you sort of show that that was a construct, that that the South Vietnamese government had a lot of support. The Viet Cong was essentially, I think you were arguing after Tet was pretty much nullified, and it was never separate from or autonomous from the North Vietnamese. Is that right? Yes. The communists deliberately tried to depict the Viet Cong as a grassroots indigenous movement that was more nationalist than communist. And this is something communists do in a lot of other places. And now the Vietnamese people themselves, they mostly see through this as a charade because they've been around the communists for a while. But there are many in the West who buy this this propaganda that the communists in the South are independent and they're homegrown. The, from the very beginning, they are led by cadres who have been trained in the north, some who went south and came and then came back uh, went from the south, came to the north and then went back. But uh, they make and they're very clear in their history. They don't make any attempt to hide this. And we have documents from them explicitly talking about how they need to deceive people into thinking they're a homegrown movement. And in another fascinating thing I, I realized, people often talk about, well, this was the first Viet Cong regiment or the second NVA regiment as if they're two entities. But in the North Vietnamese histories, they don't even make that distinction because they know it's a fiction. It's just this is the first regiment, the second re- regiment, et cetera. And so it, it's just impossible at this point to to try to argue in any sense that the movement, that there was an independent movement in the South. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick break for uh, hear some messages. We're talking with Mark Moyer, a professor of military history at Hillsdale College. And he's the author of volume two, Triumph Regain, in his trilogy, 
of the history of the Vietnam War, and we'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back with Mark Moyer, and we're talking about uh, truth, quote unquote, truths about the Vietnam War that he shows were not true at all. Another one, Mark, is that we have this idea that there were a few advisors and that this was a proxy war from uh, in the Cold War between Russia, China versus the U.S., but we were the ones that were really driving it with this huge half a million person force in Vietnam, and they were advising or helping, but on, under from the research you did, there were 100,000 Chinese uh, construction workers or support troops inside North Vietnam, and then there were, and I guess you're going to get to this in the sec- third uh, volume even in more depth, but there were Russians in almost every aspect of the defense of Haiphong and, and Hanoi, and so it it was more than just a, a third-party proxy war. It was really Russia and China with sizable contingents. And then the other corollary I liked, I think that the listeners would really enjoy is that there was developing a split between the Chinese communists that were upset about the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia in 68 and the idea that Russia thought maybe that this war could be wound down and it wasn't bringing benefits, whereas Mao wanted it to be fought uh, to the very bitter end. And that caused a friction. And I guess that was somewhat the the fissure that Nixon would go uh, later to develop when he went to China. But it wasn't really just, they were really actively engaged as opponents of the South and the United States, weren't they? Yes. The the role of China and the Soviet Union are are fascinating topics. And part of the the hesitancy of McNamara and Johnson is they're afraid that Russia or China or Soviet Union or China will fight the United States directly, as happened in the Korean War. And as you mentioned, there are these hundred thousand Chinese troops in the north, but they uh, they're helpful to the North Vietnamese because they free up North Vietnamese troops to go fight in the south. And but what we also know now is that the Chinese had no appetite for a direct conflict with the United States. And they explicitly say they took such a beating in Korea that they didn't want to keep fighting, uh, didn't want to fight the United States directly again. Now, China undergoes a huge transformation in this period. 
And part of it's because the U.S. makes a stand in Vietnam and, and blocks the, the fall of South Vietnam. And then the other part is that American intervention in South Vietnam promptly triggers the overthrow of the communists in Indonesia. And those two things together then cause Mao to turn inward and to launch his great proletarian cultural revolution, which is a disaster, kills millions of people and decimates their economy and their and their military. And this will then also lead to their falling out with their North Vietnamese allies, as well as leading to this further poisoning of relations with the Soviets. One of the things that was really fascinating is, and I, I think I use the word Hamlet, a Hamlet-like character of Johnson. So I think he thinks he's going to be a Truman who took over, as he did, from a president who died in office and then had a huge reelection. But as he was looking at uh, his second full term, uh, excuse me, in, in Truman's, it would be uh, his first full term. And Johnson has finished his first term. Uh, Johnson doesn't run, and in that process, he announces the bombing halt, and he's being pressured by his Kennedy people. I, I think Kissinger said once, "The people who got Johnson in turned out to be the real peaceniks." But McNamara, and then we have Avril Harriman, we have Cyrus Vance, and the Bundys, and so they're negotiating in Paris. And in your research has shown that the North Vietnamese are willing to do this because they need a reprieve to recover from the devastation, both of Tet, which was disastrous for them, and the bombing. But we also have this campaign going on where all of a sudden G Eugene McCarthy and then Robert Kennedy and the whole Democratic Party has moved left. And Johnson is sort of self uh, critical self, uh, feeling sorry for himself, gyrating from one position with Rostow and Ross back the other way to give in to McMara. And then he almost feels like, how can this be possible that my own vice president has to subtly but more insidiously criticize me during this election year for what I'm doing in Vietnam, even though the generals and even though my intelligence says it's working. And the final irony is that Dick Nixon, of all people, might be more pliable or more ready to follow the policies that I finally hit upon that are working. Can you sort all that out, what was going on in 68 politically? Yes. Well, the... Uh... Yeah, it's worth looking to the evolution of Lyndon Johnson because he is in the first years, 64 through into 67, he's really under the spell of Robert McNamara and mostly doing what McNamara is telling him. And he's also, you know, as you mentioned, he wants to be this great domestic policy president who, you know, ends poverty with the great society, he has all these civil rights advances. And so he deliberately avoids rallying the people around the flag. But by 1967, he starts, you hear him expressing some regrets about this because, you know, people have been telling him, and he finally understands that the president is not out there explaining the war to the people. You can't really maintain national support. So he becomes a little bit more open to cheerleading, although he tends to have others still do it. Um, and, and then there is the, um, the question of escalation. So by 67, Johnson's starting to realize that what McNamara is saying 
such as the bombing doesn't have any military men, that that is false. And so we he starts to push McNamara out the door and he'll be gone. And then he brings in Clark Clifford, who he thinks is going to be more of a hawk, but it turns out Clifford is uh, about as bad as McNamara. And and during 68, uh, he and Clifford will clash repeatedly because Clifford is is uh, arguing that uh, for for a more drastic, more rapid pullout. And he's also, again, parroting this idea that bombing doesn't have any military effect. And Johnson, you know, to his credit, stands up to Clifford and he he has the backing of uh, his ambassador, uh, Ellsworth Bunker, in uh, in South Vietnam, who's a formidable ally. You've got Rostow, um, Creighton Abrams and others who are pushing back. So, you know, part of this narrative that the left has handed down is that, you know, the country's really demoralized and on its way out by the end of 68. But in fact, Johnson does not reduce the troop strength at all during 1968. And you have, in fact, uh, remarkably steady and strong support for the war, which I credit to the, the culture of the American people, because they're still not getting a lot of direction from above, but they recognize that walking away from this and and appeasing communism is not the way to go. And uh, you can also see it in terms of the election that even Humphrey himself is urged to adopt the, the liberal platform at the 68 convention, but he refuses to do it because he knows that moderates and conservatives are not on board with the cut and run policy. Uh, but then, you know, at the end, very end there, he tries to appease the, the liberals by sort of jabbing Johnson. But in, in the end, uh, in the country ends up electing Richard Nixon, who, of course, has a reputation as a hardline anti-communist, which is another good indicator of the mood of the American people. It's very funny that um, we have the Paris Peace Conference going on, but there are people there, Harriman and Vance and others, that are actively working with other candidates or at least advising them that are running against the president. I mean, excuse me, the vice president, Humphrey, and they're antithetical to the administration's policy, which is supposed to be represented by our own peace people. Is that is that too, uh, is that unfair to them or whether um, the American contingent, at least some of them in Paris, act actively or subtly or insidiously sabotaging the the position of the Johnson administration they were chosen and appointed to advance yeah I mean, Johnson is uh you know one point's apoplectic because you have Averill Harriman the chief negotiator is you know, leaking to the press and putting out information to support Humphrey in the campaign and and to undercut Nixon and Nixon's position is actually closer to to Johnson and and Johnson you know, talks about maybe firing Harriman, bringing him home. And uh, it is really remarkable the extent to which Harriman and George Ball and others will go to try to undermine uh, their position. And then, and they take this, again, repeatedly have this view that um, we need to be more accommodating to the communists and everything will will turn out just fine, which course, we know it from subsequent events that um, these are not people to be trusted. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Mark Moyer, the author of the just release, 
Triumph Regain, Volume 2, and his three-volume uh, projected history of the Vietnam War. And we'll be right back. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. We're back again with Mark Moyer and his new book, Triumph Regain. Mark, one of the things that I thought was fascinating is that we're getting on campus, at least until he dies, this idea that Ho Chi Minh is Uncle Ho, that they are a softer form of communism. They're not quite like the Soviets. Um, and there's there's people within the Johnson administration that actually have floated the idea, and I remember it as a high school student of a coalition government where peace can be obtained if you if you force these right-wing South Vietnamese uh, elected leaders to allow communist people to roll. Was, but that's not true. I mean, he was a pretty hardcore Stalinist operative, wasn't he? Ho Chi Minh the entire time. The whole agenda was yes. to destroy the South and make it what it is today, a communist country, right? Yes, that's right. And and at the time, a lot of sensible people pointed out that communist coalition governments had been tried in places like Czechoslovakia and Poland and quickly been subverted by the communists. And there's no reason to believe things would have been any different. But it is remarkable to see some of the things that people were willing to believe by the late 60s. And I attribute this much of this to the fact that there's a sudden surge in anti-war activity on campus. It doesn't really start until 1967, which happens to be when they changed the draft regulations. And a number of people who lived through at the time attest to this, including anti-war people who were against the war, like Michael Medved, um, that essentially, you know, the war doesn't change in 67, but people turn against it because now they've lost their deferments for graduate school. And now they, they are suddenly against the war and they'll believe pretty much anything that will show that it's okay not to go to Vietnam. Yeah, I can say I was a uh, at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I was a first year, seventeen year old student, and uh, I turned eighteen during my freshman year, and I got my lottery number. And it was amazing. As soon as the draft was over and the lottery, I mean, there were still demonstrations, but it just sputtered. 
and it was it was in reverse. It showed you that much of the anti-war movement was based on the self-interest of a particular cadre, about which I think you make, uh, and I think it's very fascinating, and I think our readers will really enjoy this, our listeners, that while you're talking about the, and the this history works on a number of levels, everybody, when you look at it. It's a battle history of major battle and even some of the more minor but interesting battles throughout the Vietnam period in question, 65 to 68. And then there's another ongoing simultaneous narrative about the diplomacy behind it. And then there's a third about the media and the anti-war movement and the reaction at home. And while we think there was this huge anti-war movement that could put out, you know, a quarter million people later under Nixon, that even the Chicago violence, the American people were, they didn't think the whole world was watching. They were appalled by it. And it's very valuable. I think everybody listening, because it has resonance with the Iraq and Afghanistan, Afghanistan war and public support. And I guess what you you showed, Mark, was that the American people, if they feel there's an objective and it represents the values of their country, but more importantly, it's necessary for their own security. They're willing to to stick with it as long as they feel their leadership wants to win. But they really didn't turn on the war until they felt that we, we didn't have a leadership that wanted to win. Isn't that more li- likely than they were repelled by the violence? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's absolutely co- correct. And as I say, even you know, at the end of 68, Support levels are about where they'd been in 1965. There's this mythology that that support has been going down, and and everybody's lost confidence, and and uh, everyone's bleakly thinking about it. But uh, you know, in the war, I think could have actually been the permanently sustained. As South Vietnam could have been sustained had had we kept up our support after 1972 when it was big Easter offensive that the South Vietnamese fight off um, very very ably. And uh, yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning, if you look at the Korean War, the Korean War actually and fundamentally is not a whole lot different from Vietnam. You've got a country, you know, attacking its neighbor to the south. And, you know, South Koreans had all the faults of the South Vietnamese. They failed miserably at militarily at the beginning, but then got their act together. They're autocratic. There's corruption. And so, Again, the fact that we don't have this same perception of Korea as we do of Vietnam is, I think, more indicative of people's personal or political agendas rather than the, the reality of the situation. Yeah, it's funny how South Korea was looming, that model was looming behind all of the discussions of Vietnam. And we know now from some of the archives that have been released that one of the reasons that North Vietnam uh, or China was not more was not bolder than they otherwise would have been early, and especially China didn't intervene. Is that we know that the B twenty nine raids and the artillery under Rums, uh, Matthew Ridgeway, we we may have killed or wounded a million a million North uh, Koreans, but a million uh, included in that number in just a year were communist PLA members from from communist China. So in their way of mm-hmm. thinking. We don't want to get into a war where they unleash artillery and napalm like they did against Korea because the Chinese were thinking that they had still been traumatized by it. I know that, and that brings up the this last question I want to ask about this volume. Then I want to end on some questions. Maybe what, give us a peek of what you're doing for the third volume. But 
So when the Americans were bombing uh, under rolling thunder and they were bombing the north and then they were doing this search and destroy missions and from some you end the book in 68 and there's 35,000 dead I think by then where are those Americans dying are they dying when we're they're lifting people and inserting them in these ambushes that are prepared or these these massing of concentrations or around caisson and was it, what what could we have done at that late date? You you really outlined what we could have done earlier, but what could we have done, say, in sixty seven and sixty eight, not to have lost at that cumulative point thirty five thousand dead? Because Nixon, of course, is going to lose another twenty two or three, up until seventy three or four. But what what would have was there any way we could have fought those massive forces that were so well supplied and not suffered the level of dead that we did? Yes. And to answer the first part of your question, there American casualties are taking place uh, all over the country, except for in the Mekong Delta, which for the most part, there's not Americans there. But, uh, you know, there, there's no significant defeat. So it's just, uh, you know, Americans keep fighting. But as the North Vietnamese keep throwing troops at them, there's going to be American losses. And and so the Joint Chiefs of Staff early on recognized this and said, you know, the North Viet the way we're fighting this, North Vietnamese can just keep sending down huge numbers of people. And no matter how many we kill, they, you know, can send some more. And we could just end up in a situation where you know, they have a, a dictatorship that doesn't care how many people get killed. And we have a democracy where at some point we question the the validity or the value of ongoing casualties. So the Joint Chiefs had several things they were pushing to try to get us out of this situation. One was intensifying the bombing of the North. The other one they pushed really hard is to insert American troops into Laos to block the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is the North-South infiltration route that is used to send troops and men uh, troops and material from north to south. And McNamara and Johnson consistently turned this down. And also Ambassador William Sullivan, who's in Laos, who's also the same guy that later gets us into trouble in Iran in 1979. But they claim this isn't going to be that helpful militarily and it's going to upset our Laotian friends. And this again, here again, we see from the North Union side. And in fact, this would have been. Uh, a deadly strategic blow to the North Vietnamese, because even though we, we did some bombing, they could always get supplies through. So what you would have had, you would have had a much shorter front. Um, the, the North Vietnamese could have fought it in, in the style of the Korean War to some extent, but uh, they wouldn't be able to go hide among the population in, in the mountains and jungles. And I think there's a good chance they would have eventually kind of given up because in that sort of situation, um, it would have been even easier. You know, the U.S. was inhibited in the use of its firepower within South Vietnam because it didn't want to harm civilians. Whereas if you were fighting along this narrower front in South Vietnam and Laos, you could have just used massive firepower and inflicted crippling casualties on the North Vietnamese. We're talking to Mark Moyer, and he's just published Triumph We Gain, Volume 2. And I'd like to ask, Mark, uh, so you're 
you had a hiatus because you wrote so many books about uh, special forces and special forces operations between volume one and volume two. Are you are you going to continue to write other books or are you going to go right into volume three? And is it going to be, I, I, I suppose it'll be 69 to 75 under mostly the Nixon and Ford administrations? Yes, it will be 69 to 75. I did... Uh... You know, part of why I did these other books earlier was there was wars in Iraq and Afghanistan going yes. on, and I wanted to try to lend a hand there. And then also, um, we moved a couple times. You know, the life of a conservative academics is not nearly as easy as <laughs> that of a yeah. of a yeah. of a someone else. Um, and so now that I'm in Hillsdale College, though, I have uh, uh, a great place to be and work, and uh, I do have a book that I'm that I've pretty much finished on my time in the Trump administration, which is a whole nother story. But yeah, now I'm back to writing this, this one and uh, plan to concentrate on it. Again, the research in these first two volumes was very thorough. And so it won't come out quickly, but I do hope to get it out, you know, a few years from now. One of the things that's really interesting, and I haven't spoken about it and I, I wanted to talk, I didn't have enough room in the review, but you had an associate or a, a, a friend that was able to help access for you, I guess, through direct translation of North Vietnamese documents and archives, which really enriches the book. And that's what makes, I think, the listener should buy it, because uh, we have this narrative of what we think is going on, and we get depressed. And But my gosh, when you read these translated documents and see just how close to defeat the North Vietnamese thought they were. It's quite alarming, quite tragic. But why don't you talk a little bit about your access and use of North Vietnamese documents? Yeah, so, so the North Vietnamese, Vietnam is still a police state. They don't just let foreign researchers in their archives. But they have published a fair amount of material, including documents, uh, memoirs, uh, and so we know a lot more than we used to know. And, and I cited a lot of this material also in it was just trying to come out in Triumph Forsaken. And then, you know, some people criticized me at the time because this translator, Merle Pribino, uh, you know, he had given I was the first person who got to see a lot of this stuff. And so uh, but thereafter, you know, he he willingly translated and shared his translations with anybody who wanted them. Uh, but it turns out that a lot of the people who who are wed to this conventional wisdom don't really have much interest in these documents. And I think it's a lot of it has to do with the, the fact that they actually you know, counteract their uh, a lot of their fundamental ideas. And so uh, but yeah, in the, in the intervening time, I, I've amassed a great number of additional documents that that uh, Mr. Pribino has translated. And it is uh, certainly. Um, been crucial to many of the the arguments in the book because so much of the so much of what we knew before was what we had from U.S. sources, and it was possible to say, well, maybe those Americans were just deluded. Westmoreland didn't know what he was talking about, which uh, we didn't have definitive proof on a lot of these topics, and now we do. One, uh, and I think everybody should know that if you're a historian and in, in the American university system, and you were overtly or unapologetically conservative, as I can attest, it's very hard to get grants. It's very hard to work with colleagues. Uh, The university itself uh, looks 
askance at you. Of course, Mark is a Hillsdale is a wonderful place, so it's kind of an oasis. But what 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 I'm getting at, Mark, is Cambridge University comes and they publish your first volume. It makes a big hit. Everybody's talking about it. There's even a volume dedicated to people who support and criticize it, who write a whole book on your book. And I think you replied to some of the arguments. So now this comes out. What what happened? Why why the uh, and I'm I have to offer a disclosure. I'm the chairman of the board of Encounter Books via the Bradley Foundation, which I'm a board member. But how did Roger Kimball and you get together? And what happened to Cambridge? Or I'm trying to search for words. Maybe you can just mm-hmm. clarify us. And who will publish the third volume? Yeah, so I had a great editor at Cambridge, who uh, Frank Smith, who um, signed me up for the first book, and they did a great job. Um, but he has since retired, and as you, Victor, well know from all your books, uh, having a supportive editor is critical for an author. And um, the uh, the editor that I, I was then assigned later was didn't seem to be very interested, and I requested another editor. Um, and they said they wouldn't do that. Um, and, and so that was really the main reason why um, I decided that uh, to, to part ways. Um, they have, you know, to give you some idea of, you know, I think the university presses were a bit later than the rest of the academy in turning towards um, the far left. Um, so one of the recent books Cambridge did on Vietnam shortly before this all happened was called Pulp Vietnam War and Gender in Cold War Men's Adventure Magazines. <laughs> and so that I think gives you an idea of you know where the the interests of these publishers um live today. Also you might find this amusing too. There's a an endorsement of this book from Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, who as you know published, you know, ran this big v- documentary series yes. that uh, basically parlayed the, the traditional anti-war view of things. And their comment is this uh, on this pulp phenom is, uh, quote, this brilliantly analyzed history dismantles masculine archetypes portrayed by media during the Vietnam War. The author explores the way fantasy images of war have been perpetuated throughout history and have given young men unrealistic war views on masculinity. So that's, uh, again, Ken Burns and uh, what they think. So, yeah, it's um, so Encounter's been wonderful. They were, uh, you know, I immediately thought of them when I was trying to find a new home. And uh, and yeah, I, I plan to publish with them, uh, um, you know, and it's it's a bit like Hillsdale in that, um, you know, there shouldn't be a need for all these alternate um refuges necessarily but um it's to the point that the you know exclusionary exclusionary tactics uh are so pervasive that um we need these new places and i i was actually just at harvard which is where i went for undergraduate um speaking to the students there and you know, there's a recent poll that found that only one percent of their faculty identified themselves as conservative mm-hmm. and i'm guessing those people were not in uh, history or English or uh, government, they were probably in the hard sciences or something. But it's uh, 
it's truly um, appalling what's happened to our higher educational system. And uh, you know, I had the opportunity to speak with some conservative students there, and they, you know, they, uh, you know, it's hard for them to have role models. And you know, Harvey Mansfield, who was sort of the conservative role model when I was there, still is stuck around, but he's about to retire, and there are no. Uh, you don't even have token conservatives at these places anymore. It's it's, it's really no, I know it. I, same thing is happening, unfortunately, where I work at the Hoover Institution on the Stanford campus. And one of the things that I uh, is for my job at the Bradley Foundation is to work with Roger Kimball and what he's done at Encounter. I think everybody should just investigate. It's just phenomenal because it's profitable. It's expanded its list. It's it's done wonderful things like Wilford McClay's Land of Hope textbook. And it's it, what's sad about it, Mark, is that these marquee authors like yourself, but many more who have contracts with Hachette, Random House, uh, Doubleday, all of the main trade names in New York have had their contracts pulled or they've not if they're not pulled ostensibly then suddenly an editor will ankle bite or carp at them to drive them out and then they're all flocking to encounter so it's in an ironic way it's it's been an encounter bonanza because they can get this all of these wonderful authors that that should be dispersed throughout the publishing scene and they're not they're they're being canceled or they've been ostracized and that's that's something that's um that's really disturbing one thing that i think everybody's listening as as well this book is beautifully produced and i i must say mark i thought cambridge did a wonderful job but i think the encounter has done it it, it looks just wonderful uh the production yes. quality of it yeah they did a great job on it and uh and that's another problem you know academic presses increasingly are shrinking the size of their print and not marketing to general audiences. They're only writing for other academics. And, uh, you know, again, not too many of your average person wants to read about, you know, war and gender in the Vietnam War. And, uh, but, you know, they don't apparently have a, too much concern about how much money they make. Um, and they're happy to yeah. you know, pursue uh, things that, conform to their ideological preconceived ideas. One last question and we'll finish. Um, so between Vietnam and 75 and here, we're almost a half century and we've had the MAGA movement and this resistance toward optional wars that are not strategically resolved in our favor, but can be very costly. Afghanistan, Iraq, or the bombing in Libya, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe even the first Gulf War, but when you look at your first two volumes and you look ahead toward the third and you look at the half century since then, do you, is there an argument that w what we did in Vietnam, I, I'm thinking of you, you've referenced, I think in the first or second volume, Michael Lynn's The Necessary War. And I won't get into that because it's another whole other topic, but is there an argument to be made that we could that we that the cost of going in and saving South Vietnam would have resulted in a South Korean like country, and that would have stopped 
And it did maybe, as you point out, the communist aggression elsewhere, it would have served as a buffer and it could have been done at a far less cost than the tragedy that entailed. Or do you feel that after you've looked at and spent a great deal of your life looking at it, it's just that we're not equipped to go into these places and we shouldn't go in? What, have you have you had a consensus yet when you look back at Vietnam? Yeah, I think that is, I think we could have certainly kept uh, kept up a South Vietnam that would look a lot more like uh, South Korea than it does today. Um, so from a humanitarian point of view, that's tragic. We, uh, um, you know, by leaving, we we allowed the communists to, to move in there and also to kill millions of people in Cambodia. Um, but in the bigger picture, we did actually save most of Southeast Asia, which was our objective. And that in itself, I think, was worthy of great sacrifice. But you know, th- there were, as I said, strategic opportunities missed that could have kept the war to a much lower cost. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been a very interesting hour. And I urge all of our listeners to buy Triumph Regained. It's available at the Encounter uh, website, and you can buy it at Amazon and bookstores. And uh, Mark's going to be doing a lot of publicity in the next two or three weeks. So let's hope that the word gets out because this is a wonderful reappraisal. It comes at a very important time, as Mark alluded to at the beginning, because some of the questions that he deals with and analyzes, I think, are relevant today in Ukraine. And uh, Mark, thanks for joining us. And I hope you'll come back for volume three. Thanks, Victor. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And this is Victor Hansen signing off.